induced heart attack. Me. Managers on a major league baseball team don't make decisions. Could have done without that. Credibility in this situation is worse than losing your job. Was it over when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor? The castration of the major league baseball managers, we know it. Ask me about my win. What's going on, everybody? Another edition of the Passball Show. Today we're live at the RWJ Barnabas Arena in Tom's River, New Jersey. This is a, a very important event where a lot of money is going to be raised for charity. Dine with us, feel the dreams amongst the different charitable organizations. You're going to get a lot of money today from the Harlem Wizards, who are going to be in town to play a game today. I'm joined right now by longtime MMA fighter George Sullivan. I really want to tell you I appreciate you being yeah, part of the program thanks today me. thanks for having me and obviously glad to have you be part of this event first of all um, a, a little bit about like what what got you into fighting and how, how you got started yeah. in the whole business so troubled kid like most uh, was getting into some trouble and then uh, I got a little bit of this big fight and then I started to go to martial arts in like the garage a little training here and there yeah and then I was discovered in a parking lot by somebody I funny enough uh, my girlfriend at the time cheated on me okay. and this guy overheard it and he's like yo you want to fight and I said yeah <laughs> and then I was discovered from there went right into Muay Thai went to Virginia two months later fought got my whole face broken I fought at heavyweight too which is crazy because yeah. I fought at welterweight and then that was my life I was 19 years old hooked on fighting and then I went pro by the time I was 23 but I got that hook once I fought in front of a crowd I knew that's what I wanted to do so, and, yeah. so, like, like from a from a uh, like tactical standpoint, because you know you, you think of like MMA in general, you know, like I just think you know any sort of, of, of fighting. What what were the things that you felt like were your strengths, and like what what kind of what kind of in, kind of interested so the most? Cra- the first time I knew I could fight is when I fought somebody, and it felt slow. Yeah. I felt so calm, so relaxed, no nerves, no hesitation. I just felt like normal. Yeah. And like that's when I, I actually said to my mom, I said, it's weird. Every time I fight somebody, I get more comfortable because I was only 19, yeah. 20. Then by the time I became a man, when you start to overwhelm another human being and it becomes fun and you get hit, there's a funny smell you get if you get hit. It's like a bloody smell. Yeah. yeah. And it makes you go forward or it makes you go back. And real fighters, we go forward, we enjoy it, we smile. And I just love it. There's just something in me that drives me for that one versus one, let's see who wins. It's not even about being the tougher person, I want to hurt you. I just like that That competition, there's just nothing. I've played baseball, I've raced bikes, I've done so many sports. But when you have one person, you're locked in a cage, and it's like, who's getting out? It's just a different feeling. No, absolutely. Yeah, and it's an incredible feeling. Yeah, once again, we're joined by George Sullivan, and you know, like, like I think of like uh, Mike Tyson made a yeah. you know made a reference. He's like, you know, you want to, uh, you know, everybody thinks they're tough until you get punched in the mouth. It's the truth, and, though. And and, and, I, and I tell you, like from from the fighting standpoint, there's no more literal sense of it. Yeah. So like obviously, there's so much more to it than just you know yeah. going up there, you know, kicking somebody's ass and being yeah. able to yeah. handle some pain. There, there's that mental element of it. So from exactly. from up here. Well, what's the most that you get out of it, and what's what's that perspective as you come into it? I fight? always get chills talking about this. I just got chills. Like for <laughs> me, like the people that need to bark and act tough, 
Those aren't the ones you have to worry about. Yeah. The ones you have to worry about are someone like me. You can't really tell I fight. My ears aren't that bad. I don't yeah. care. Yeah. I don't walk into a room and try to be tough. Yeah. All of those guys are garbage. I don't care how tough they are. If you're not a registered professional fighter, I don't think you're tough. Yeah. I don't care. And it doesn't matter. You can try to be tough, but the mindset of you walking into a room and not trying to show people you're tough shows me that you have confidence. Yeah, yeah. And I was that's, thought, that's I was thought about it like this. Like, if you are that tough, what do you got to declare it for? And that's exactly the point. These guys that are like, I'm a fighter, I'm this, I'm that. No, you're not. You're a poser trying to be something Absolutely. that you're not. Yeah, you know? and, and like you said at the beginning, I, I'd be more concerned about somebody that just kind of keeps quiet to me. Yeah. You know, that person, They're the best That ones. person ain't got ain't to yeah. prove nothing, dude. They're just sitting over there <laughs> smiling. Like, that's why jujitsu guys can be so dangerous because you don't know that they can grapple. Most yeah. of them just are hippie-looking like guys, and then they'll submit you. But the, the ones that are trying to prove something, those aren't real athletes. No, those, and fighters are athletes. We're in the gym 24-7. I just retired. It was my life from 19, and I'm 42 now. So it's like, it's a lifestyle. So from a from a fighting standpoint, if you were if you were to let's say like I don't know, I, w I was interviewing you for for fighting right now, and you were saying, this is my biggest strength. What what type of fighting would be your best? Strength? I was known for knocking people out. I was a silencer. Yeah. Okay. So my strength was to get people, hold them and hurt them, okay, or knock them out on their feet. And my other strength is I've only been TKO'd standing once, 30-something yeah. fights. I've only hit the ground once. So for me, I would say my chin and my ability to not get knocked out and then to knock people out was my strength. My weakness was I would get submitted because they would get my back. And I would want to knock them out so bad, and then I would forget about jujitsu and get caught. Yeah. And that's what happens when you get to the UFC and they're dangling fifty thousand dollars in front of you, telling you to knock somebody out. Yeah. Go get that fifty grand. You're like, yeah, let's go. Hey. And it makes you forget you're an athlete. And then you start to think about, I want money. I want money. So I think my strength, most of my career, was just to go for the knockout and stay with my strength. You know. yeah, yeah, so it kind of gets me into like you know the whole submission thing because I think you know you could be the strongest dude in the world, you could you yeah. know, you you could hit the hardest, you you but you know some somebody gets you in the wrong position. That's, dude, that's exactly that's what happened it. to me. That's exactly <laughs> what happened to me. Like I would be beating guys up. Like I fought Nico Price, who was number he got to sixth in the world. I put him in the hospital, but I gassed and my hands cramped. He took my back and took me out. Uh, Meanwhile, he went to the hospital. I had no marks on me. Yeah. So if you don't get that right game plan just for that split second, you lose. And then you also have to know about the the fighter who, yeah, who, who exactly. you're going back. You got to know what and their I'm strengths a, I'm are. Like, I, I've been rolling jujitsu for 22 years. It's not like I can't hold my own. The problem is when you're fighting, you kind of zone out to one thing. It's very difficult to remember wrestling, striking, grappling, your cardio, all these different things. Usually, you tend to go one way. Yeah. And when you want that knockout, you want that extra money. Of course, it is. and you forget about it. And it played into their, their card several times for me. Yeah, so last question. Once again, I'm joined yeah. by George Sullivan. I appreciate you so much for being Absolutely. part of the program. So when you, when you, you know, as a fighter, you, you, is there anybody in particular you look up to and you say, like, man, you know what? They did something a certain way. Maybe I emulated some of what I learned. Uh, you know, everybody knows who Robbie Lawler was. He was one of my favorite fighters. I loved him to death. I just liked him because he wanted to fight. Yeah. That was me. I never said no to fights. Every time they offered me a fight, I took it. 
there's two things I don't like. I don't like fighters that miss weight. I think it's weak. The only time I missed weight, I, I cut 42 pounds in three days because I took my friend's fight. Mm-hmm. I missed by half a pound. 43 pounds I did in three days. And, and, that's, and like, that's the key of just knowing yeah, what you are. Hey, if I'm That guy was class, grateful that I doing. even took the fight. Al yeah. Buck, you're my boy uh, who I fought. But I don't like fighters who miss weight. I think they're lazy, and I think it's pathetic. Mm-hmm. And I don't like... I don't like um, so with fighters who miss weight, I absolutely can't stand. Um, and it's just like you have to just do the whole thing, you know. Yeah. So I mean, that's basically other than that, you know. So I want to close it with this: Is there anybody fighting right now that you say, like, man, dude? I, I well, like, John I Jones like is the god. Yeah, John, John Jones is. He's built. He's got an eighty-something inch reach. He got all oh, his legs, and then he's been doing it for so long. But he yeah. doesn't lose. Yeah. His only loss is to an illegal elbow that was a, um, a north south, could have gone either way. So I think John Jones is the greatest MMA fighter ever to live. And I looked up to him. Tyson was my idol. Yeah, I, 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 I love Tyson. When I, I was mean, a kid, man. Tyson and James Tony. Like I fell in love with boxing, but there was no real boxing gyms in Brick. So I went to MMA because of my old team. But I would say, you know, like John Jones is the greatest fighter ever to live. Boxers, no offense, you're not fighters, you're boxers. Of course. It's a, it's a, Could you a, outbox me? Absolutely. <laughs> Could you outcage fight me? No. We're fighters, you're boxers. And that's just the only difference that I see in that. But I think greatest boxer for me was Tyson because yeah. of his knockouts. Was he the most technical? No. But my favorite. And John Jones, he's lost, what, three rounds in his career? Yeah. Three rounds? That's he doesn't insane, lose right? anything. I tell so you, you lead, you lead me right into this, and, I, and I, th- I tell you, this is this is awesome because I love how you how you're able to just pick things up and that are going on in my head. I, as a boxing fan, when I was a kid, dude, I friggin' I loved boxing. I would get whatever pay per view was on in the eighties yeah. and the early nineties, and to me, the sport just got too corrupt, and it went it went to a point where it was it was the ultimate fighting sport. Yeah. And then basically, it's failure. And to me, it was just basically malpractice led to the emergence of basically every other mixed martial arts Here, in the entirety of UFC. I'm so glad you said that, because here's what I don't get. I fought in front of 18,000 people, 80-something million views on some of my fights. Yeah. Sold out arenas. You ever see some of these boxers making millions of dollars, but there's nobody in the crowd? Yeah. How? Is it possible that they can pay these boxers that yeah. much money and we get paid nothing compared to what but they you, do, you, but you our know, show sell more, you, you our, understand pay, exactly our pay-per-views <laughs> are higher, but oh wait, they're making millions for nothing. I've, I've never understood it. A, it was it the, ru- the promote. I mean, basically, that's the, the sponsors that must, corruption ended yeah, up destroying the sport. It's corruption. It was great for a while because it brought so much money. Yeah, it's insane. It's a completely different, like two levels of money. Yeah. And it's just incredible because MMA gets more views, but boxing gets more money. That's why I don't blame the MMA fighters for going over. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I, I tell you, like I said, I, I became more of an MMA fan in my adult years. Yeah. Just ba- basically because we all I, I, I got I got disappointed by what I was seeing. In yeah, boxing. and I still I still don't think they're like look at YouTube boxing now. Look, I take nothing away from Jake and Logan. They're doing a great thing. And they brand themselves well. But boxing retired MMA fighters that are shot, 
it's just a bad look. Yeah. And I'm sorry. I, I'm not against it because I love the fact that they're making money. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, love and, seeing And maybe it's one money. of those things that they don't want to build themselves up sure. for, for a big disappointment, yeah. you know? So you go up against somebody that's better than you, yeah. there's a chance they might win. Yeah, <laughs> and I don't think like, everyone's given these retired guys coming out of retirement crap. Listen, I'm a fighter. I didn't fight for three years. I just unretired and won a title seven months ago and then retired again because I needed to fight. Fighters need to compete. So I don't care if they're 50, 60. If they want to do it, let them do it for their own sake. It's their life, their legacy. Let them do it. That's the only thing, too. People are giving all these other guys crap for coming out of retirement. I don't agree with that. No, absolutely, man. Yeah, so that's about it for me. Yeah, listen, man. I appreciate you coming by, dude. Yeah, thanks great for job. having me, man. This is going to be a yeah. great event. Yeah, Super absolutely. Yeah, and so. yeah, if you got a couple minutes, you know, anything about you know that you're you're promoting or anything that's on your mind that you like to? No, guys. You know, we're doing um, anybody who attends this. Uh, we're doing a free thirty minute private at my gym, Sullivan Kickboxing Academy, Tom's River, New Jersey, uh, on Fisher Boulevard. We're giving you three free classes and your choice of coach for a 30-minute private. Everybody who does this gets a gift, uh, gets a chance to win a $100 gift card from Amazon. And we have some free shirts to give away. Everything that I'm doing for this event is free. Our time for our coaches, our, our daily our, our, our fees to get into the gym, all waived. We just want to give away to the community, help everybody out here, and uh, that's it. And thanks for everybody that came. And anybody who wants to take advantage of that promotion, come see me at the Sullivan Kickboxing Academy in Tom's River. All right, George. Thanks Thank a lot, you man. so much, guys. Exactly. I we'll appreciate it. Appreciate take it. care. All right, that was George Sullivan, recently retired MMA fighter. But as you hear from his own perspective, just came back and won a title. Uh, jumping from here into baseball. I wanted to hit up on a couple different points, stuff going on in the world of sports. And like I said, if anything's on your mind, you could comment on the videos. Um, send me a freaking text at 732-513-5927. I, I, I don't even care. But, you know, we were talking about the baseball general managers meetings as they're moving into the baseball winter meetings coming up pretty soon. And I think there's two different things to be very intrigued about. One of them is the vulnerability of one distinct team, while the other one has to do with actual trade leverage. And I'm going to start out by talking about the vulnerability of the Milwaukee Brewers right now, being in basically a sell-down type of situation. Their payroll is a little bit too high for their liking. I'm pretty sure the owner came down a couple years ago and said, listen, this was coming. That led to David Stern's kind of reducing his position within the organization and eventually taking a job with the New York Mets. And you have that. And then obviously Craig Council, the manager, who was very much wanted back, taking a large contract offer from the Chicago Cubs to take over there. So you got those two things happening, which means that the idea of what the Brewers were looking to do was spoken well out there. And obviously the public understanding that Corbin Burns, Willie Adamas, the recent decision to non-tender Brandon Woodruff, the trade of Mark Canna, who was only going to make, what, about $9.5 if his option was picked up to the Detroit Tigers, puts the Brewers in a position where everybody in baseball is like, who am I going to pry off of that team? I'm going out there and I'm trying to trade for Corbin Burns. I'm going out there and I'm trying to make a trade for Willie Adamas. And you know what? Devin Williams, 
your all-star closer. I'm going to see what I can do to get him because the Brewers look like they're in a position to make a move like this. And they're really one of the only teams in baseball that are, that are set up this way. The Oakland Athletics have been taken apart. Every possible thing that exists from the Oakland Athletics, unless you want to go try to trade for a couple of their prospects, they, they don't have anything left to trade. Are the Brewers going into a deep rebuild? I got a fear that they might be. And this vulnerability is going to spark up ears. The antennas are going to go up for a guy like Brian Cashman, who I've talked about being the bully. He's basically the bully, the predator, the guy that Chris Hansen's going to come up and get, and obviously in a metaphorical sense, because he's looking to prey on the weak. He's looking to prey on the general manager that has to get rid of players, and he's going to offer you very little. And I think from a Yankees perspective, that's the one team you're hoping that Brian Cashman gets a chance to kind of raid a little bit. Because what have I said before in the PBS? Baseball's tired of Brian Cashman. Teams, other organizations are tired of his tactics. They're tired of the way he does business. I've heard specifically that there are individual Major League Baseball teams that will not do business with Brian Cashman and the Yankees. If, if the Yankees are going to make a trade to get themselves better, whether it's a Corbin Burns, whether it's a Willie Adamas, whether it's a, let's say, a Devin Williams, it, it's going to be the Yankees that, that are going to kind of jump in and try to do the best they can with that. When it comes to trade leverage, like I said, the Brewers are on that one end, or end of the spectrum where they don't have very much trade leverage. Everybody knows in baseball what they're looking to do right now. And that doesn't give them much leverage. I feel like a lot of other teams in baseball have leverage when it comes to trades. You look at the teams that are building themselves up right now, whether it's the Cincinnati Reds, but you can look back this past year, the Baltimore Orioles, the Arizona Diamondbacks getting themselves to the World Series. I'm looking at teams that are pretty much ready to win now but have a ton of young talent. And they're not going to trade from that young talent to get themselves any sort of rentals. It makes it hard to do business with a team like that. you got young players that are up at the major league level. You're not really looking to trade anybody to get a veteran. So then you got a team like the Angels, a team like the Mets, and obviously we're talking about speculative possibilities that maybe a Mike Trout could get traded, maybe a Pete Alonso would get traded. And you got to look at it like this. There is very little leverage when it comes to the trading team as opposed to the team that has the talent. We just spoke about the Brewers, and I'm talking about an owner that's come down and told David Stearns a couple years ago he had to. That's why David Stearns got out. We're going to be reducing payroll drastically. Manager's gone. Same reason. He doesn't want to be part of a rebuild. The leverage is on the team that's trading with the Milwaukee Brewers. If the Mets are going to make a trade for Pete Alonso, if the Angels are going to make a trade involving Mike Trout, the leverage is on the team that has the player. And it's going to make it tough to make a trade. If, let's say, the Cubs are the one and Jesse Rogers is going to keep running with the story that he believes that somehow the Mets and Cubs are going to make a deal involving Pete Alonso, it's going to cost the Cubs a lot more than they're willing to give up. It's going to cost a Pete Crow Armstrong. It's going to cost a Javier Assad. It's going to be a lot more than just a Christopher Morel. And the same thing with the Angels. The Angels are under no situation where they're forced under any circumstances to have to deal Mike Trout. 
Mike Trout, from a financial standpoint, the owner could afford to pay him. They could afford to leave him in his career with the Angels for the rest of his time. The general public might not like it. You know, the public may say nobody's going out to watch Angel games, but I'll tell you this. People were watching Angels games when they were winning the World Series in 2002. In other words, they didn't want to watch they don't want to watch the Angels lose games. They want to watch the Angels win games. So if they build a winner, the fans will come out. The fans came out to Arizona to the World Series, to Texas, to the World Series because those teams were good enough to get there. When the Kansas City Royals won the World Series in 2015 when they got there a year before in 2014, the fans were filling the ballpark. That's what happens. Fans want to see a team win. There's no such thing as markets. Hey, they like to go to games. They don't like to go to games. Nobody wants to watch a loser. So if your team's losing, nobody's going to show up. The Angels will draw fans once they build a winner. People say, oh, well, the best way to build a winner is to trade Mike Trout. And this is where the Angels still hold the cards. If you want to make a deal for Mike Trout, the Angels, for no reason, would sell him for pennies on the dollar. So if you're the Dodgers, if you're the Giants, whatever team that maybe you're a fan of that says, we got a really good chance of making a trade for Mike Trout, think about what you'd be willing to part with. Because the Angels have the leverage. They don't have to make a deal. I'm happy to be joined right now by world champion, Paul Kenny. What's going on, man? I appreciate you having a couple minutes today. What's going on? How are you? Hey, first thing I like to hear about, because this, this like intrigues me a little bit, what brought in your interest in wrestling and what kind of got you into it? Uh, my family, uh, my uncle and my dad used to wrestle in high school, and um, I didn't really like a lot of other sports growing up. I mean, they were big wrestling fans, so okay. then I grew into being a wrestling fan and got into it when I was like four years old, five years old. So, so that's what you remember about four or five years old yeah. you decided? Cool. Now... Did you get to a certain point where you like you realized you're kind of good? I mean, that's probably something that you like. You uh, kind of had an advantage overall, right? Yeah. Uh, when I won my first state title, I mean, I kind of like realized that I can go, I can win more things. Uh, I'm, I'm really humble, so I still think I can win more after winning worlds. So, of course. Dude. Yeah. So, like, like, you know, is there is there anybody like outside of your family that kind of inspired you and motivated you? Is there anybody like you look up at, at, as like wrestlers? Oh uh, yeah, my coach Anthony Ashnall, uh, pretty much all my coaches, my coach Anthony Ashnall mostly, because yeah, I really got started with him. Um, my first ever coach, Maurice Worthy, he went to Central. Okay. Yeah, he won states, NCAA finals, he's really good. So, like, as you, as you look back, and like you mentioned, you know, being humble, and it's obviously, you know, a, a, a great attribute to have as a young man, and obviously as you become an adult. Um, is is there anything you're you're looking to accomplish still? You know, like obviously, you know, you, you got high high school, you got college, whole bunch of different things going on. What do you what are you looking to do? Uh, I want to go undefeated this year in high school. Uh, I want a state title. I want to win four state titles. I want to go undefeated in all my high school. I want to lose. All right, man. And then last thing, anything that you're uh, you know, you're thinking about? You want you want anybody to hear about? Uh, no, I'm just excited for the rest of the season. Uh, it's Christian Brothers Academy. All right, cool, man. Paul Kenny, really appreciate you having a couple minutes, man. Thank you. So today is the 18th day of November 2023, and the reason I bring that up is it's time for today's segment of Saving Sports History. So everything that happened that I'm about to talk about happened on the 18th day of November in sports history. We start out with the year of 1949. Jackie Robinson wins the National League MVP, the only one he would win in his career. 
And I brought this up. 342 average, 960 OPS, 9.3 wins above replacement. Now, in 1949, nobody gave a shit about wins above replacement. But to bring it up to today's standards, it's a pretty good season. 122 runs scored, 203 hits. Speaking of nobody giving a shit now, runs batted in. Nobody cares about that. He had 124. 37 steals, 17 sacrifice bunts. All led the league. Now, his 9.3 war was one percentage point or one-tenth of a point ahead of that of Stan Musial, who had a great season himself. 207 hits, led the league with a 438 uh, on-base percentage, 1.062 OPS, 128 runs scored, slugging percentage he led the league in as well, 658, 36 home runs, 123 runs batted in, just one below Jackie Robinson. 9.2 wins above replacement. Ralph Kiner that year hit 54 home runs, drove in 127 runs, both led the league, led the league in OPS with a 1.89, 1.089. So pretty good year for those three players, but as you bring it up so many years later, Jackie Robinson still had the best season. So all the changes in the standards that have been switched around when it comes to the most valuable player award and the voting process and what gets factored in, Jackie Robinson winning the MVP in 1949 still holds water. So we jump into the DeLorean, crank it up to 88 miles an hour, and jump 15 years ahead to 1964. Brooks Robinson wins the MVP of the American League. Reason I bring this up because, you know, you say Brooks Robinson, a defensive specialist, First of three consecutive years, by the way, that Robinson finished one, two, or three in the AL MVP. Obviously known for his defense, he did have a couple really good offensive seasons. But you look at Brooks Robinson and you, you try to say, hey, did that similarly hold water? Mickey Mantle was good that season. Nobody else really had a season up there of Brooks Robinson. And from a wins above replacement standpoint, that season held up as well. Just two years later, the great Sandy Koufax retires. And if you look at that six-year stretch from 1961 to 1966, 129 wins, just 47 losses at a time where wins mattered because pitchers finished games. He had a, a great run, 115 complete games, 35 shutouts during that time. Average 272 innings, 283 Ks a season. Just 195 hits allowed and 69 walks, a whip of under one over that stretch. The greatest six-game, six-season stretch of a pitcher in baseball history. 1970, Joe Frazier wins the now unified WBA, WBC, and the ring heavyweight titles, beating Bob Foster in a second round knockout. That's when he became heavyweight champion champion is a precursor to the big fight with Muhammad Ali and obviously you know my feeling about boxing and boxing history. Johnny Bench that same day was named the National League MVP in 1970. 1979 Richard Petty became the first seven-time NASCAR Series champion. 1980, George Brett wins the American League MVP. Now that's the year that he won. He had the 390 batting average. I throw a little cold water on it, even though it was a great accomplishment, highest single season total batting average since Ted Williams, of course, in 1941. Something out of his control, he was hurt. He missed 45 games that season. That 390 batting average looks great if he played 150 games. 
Now, the 500, what, 551 plate appearances he had, more than enough to qualify for the batting title. Excellent, excellent season, but I throw a little cold water on it because it would have been much better if it was a season he was able to stay healthy. Only 107 games played that year. I'm sorry, what, 117 games played? So disappointing from that perspective. Great moment in baseball history, but you remember the 390 batting average of George Brett in 1980. you got to put the little asterisk if you're going to asterisk steroids, which I don't really care about the asterisk at all. But just throw all the details out there. Let us make the judgment for ourselves. 390 batting average, but in 117 games. On this day, Jack Tatum, one of the more hard-hitting, fierce defensive players to ever play in this game. I think it's a shame that he's not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Was born on this day in 1948. One of my heroes when it comes to pro football, Warren Moon. He's actually the reason that I became a football fan, the reason that I'm now a Tennessee Titans fan is because I was a Houston Oilers fan with Warren Moon in that run-and-shoot offense. Born on this day in 1956. Gary Sheffield, the guy that I believe should be in the Baseball Hall of Fame, 509 career home runs, the last 10 or so, were played for my beloved New York Mets, born on his day in 1968. A guy that's in the Hall of Fame, deservedly so, David Ortiz, dominating, dominating power hitter, great, one of the greatest postseason offensive position players to ever play in baseball, born on his day in 1979. And Denny Hamlin, three-time Daytona 500 winner, 16, 19, and 20, was born on this day in 1980. And Caleb Williams, the guy who's going to be the number one overall pick in the next NFL draft. Who knows who he's going to be playing for? Maybe it's going to be the Chicago Bears. Who knows? Born on this day in 2001. In 1980, we lost one of the legends to the game of hockey. In fact, one of the awards that are out there very well bears his name. Con Smythe died on this day in 1980, Hall of Fame owner of the Toronto Maple Leafs, eight-time Stanley Cup champion. This is the Past Ball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com, by St. Aloysius Church in Jackson, New Jersey, by Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck, located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. If you're interested in hearing me flop my yap mouth, you can check me out on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music Videos on YouTube. God bless you, and as always, I'll see you on the other side. Chris Bryant was on the Chicago Cubs roster opening day. I have many leather-bound books. My apartment smells of rich mahogany. Why don't you give it all or a majority of it to the team that wins the freaking World Series? I was going to listen to that, but then I just carried on living my life. I may come out as the biggest Major League Baseball manager apologist. It'll only make someone work just hard enough not to get fired. Because hitters are going out there saying, I'm either going to hit a home run or I'm going to strike out. And if I don't get a pitch that I feel like I could drive out of the park, I'm not even supposed to be here today. Especially prospect whores and hoarders are going to be a little pissed off at me when I say this. I'm a dude believe the dude disguises another dude. There are only two managers in baseball's Hall of Fame who have losing records. One of them is the iconic Connie Mack, who you could say, in spite of winning five World Series championships as a manager, could be in as much as a pioneer. And what side of the spectrum they're on? Were they pitching? Were they batting? If your favorite team was pitching and a ball got inside to hit a batter, there's no way it could have been on purpose. But if you were a fan of the team that was batting and a ball got inside and hit somebody or went behind somebody's head, absolutely 100%, unequivocally, that pitcher was throwing at. Well, we're going Lito Lee.
veil between their legs and decided they're going to do exactly what they're told. You damn well right. Better give him a contract extension. You damn well right. Better make him the manager over the next series of years. 35 years ago, I could have loaned your parents the money for an abortion. <laughs>